serve him. So that being said, I'm super excited to announce to you a brand new series that we're going to be starting right now. I have no idea how long uh, we're going to be doing this for, um, but it seems to be exactly what God wants us to do as we step into this right now into a series of the book of Psalms. Yes, you heard it right, the Psalms. I've, I've never officially taught through the entire book of Psalms. We're not necessarily going to be doing the entire book of Psalms right now. There's 150 chapters. We're not going to be necessarily doing that. Um, and I'm not exactly certain as to how many of the Psalms that we're actually going to be looking at. Again, right now, we're just kind of getting the download. And again, this was not planned. And normally, normally when I teach a series, I'll spend, you know, months, sometimes a couple of years ahead of time, planning, preparing, reading, listening praying through the content. Um, this was literally within the past, I don't know, week, if that, um, of just feeling like this was what God was directing our church family to really dig into. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. Um, but then to begin to really uh, create the content for you guys as the church so that you can truly, truly be the church and live into that as well. So with that being said, um, why the Psalms? Um, well, in short, one of the things that we've realized is that the Psalms are really this incredible book that speaks on so many different levels as to what it really looks like to follow Jesus in days of incredible disruption and disorientation and brokenness and chaos and really the process or the protestation of against the challenges that one faces, but also at the same time coming into a life of hope and faith in God. So in other words, that being said, we just feel like this is an important book to give us vocabulary or language to really truly press into Jesus in this season which we find ourselves right now, which is an unprecedented season. We want to be truly faithful followers of Jesus. So we're excited to be going through the book of Psalms. Again, that's where I would highly recommend you also um, incorporating this into not only a daily rhythm of reading the Psalms, but also a weekly rhythm of gathering together with some other people as well. Um, but that being said, uh, what I want to do right now is I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to begin to jump into this teaching of Psalms, and then we're going to wrap it up with a song. Again, our teaching times on Sunday mornings have been a little bit truncated or shorter just because of the audience that we have on here in terms of a live audience is a little bit different watching uh, as opposed to being live, which by the way, I miss you guys, man. I just honestly, it's, it's uh, as, as tough as this whole season is, I miss seeing uh, the church family, miss hanging out with you guys, miss giving you guys hugs. This is where we're at right now. We're doing the very best that we can as a collective community to really press into Jesus with what we've been given. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into the teaching here this morning, and then we'll just wrap it up with a song of worship, and at the end end, uh, transition into a time of just prayer. So if you have need for prayer for anything that's going on in your life, um, we provide space at the very end at our, on our Zoom page. Again, one of the best things that you can do, I think Amanda had made mention of this, is to go to calvaryslow.com forward slash Sunday worship guide, forward slash Sunday worship guide. All the information just kind of written down right there. Again, there is also another like little, um, it's a Google document that basically goes through uh, a Sunday teach, or sorry, uh, a Psalm a day, teaching you, giving you some instruction and information. There's a host of resources that are on there as well. Links from different websites, MP3s you can download, videos you can watch. Again, our hope is to equip you so that you can really take ownership of your discipleship with Jesus and press into Christ in these crazy, unprecedented times. So I'm going to pray. Let's jump in. 
God, right now we just pause and we reflect upon your nature. Uh, Not only who you are, how you've shown yourself to be faithful in times past. And God, all of that allows us to have some degree of knowledge of what you will be like in the future. Which means we have hope. And it allows our hearts to be able to process the craziness and the confusion of this present moment because you are a God that's unchanging. So God, right now I pray that as we begin to enter into this, the world of the Psalms, God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, perceptions to be able to be fully aware of, of who you are and where we're at in your world. So God, we pray, may your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. That's our longing, that's our desire, that's our hope. So we commit this morning in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What I want to do right now is I want to um, just give a real brief introduction into Psalms, and then I'm going to read the very first Psalm, and then I'll make a couple uh, comments with regard to it, and then we will conclude. Um, the, the Psalms uh, is really, again, like I said before, I, I, I've never officially taught through the entire book of Psalms, um, but in the limited time that I've had just to kind of research and dig into this, I've been blown away by the type of literature that it is and realizing like, man, I've, I've, I've had this book in my Bible, just like, you know, we all have had, um, that in my personal experience has not been tapped into with as much earnestness as I think it could have been or should have been. Um, over the past year and a half, I've been, I have been having a practice of reading a Psalm a day, if not a couple of them, um, but really realizing the importance of digging even deeper into the Psalms and allowing the Psalms to kind of formulate language for me to process uh, worship and process and try to make sense of the craziness of my life, just like uh, you and I are gifted with the ability to be able to do that. A couple things that to note with regard to the Psalms, um, there is a Hebraic view or Jewish perspective that just like Moses wrote the first five books of the Torah, uh, David wrote uh, five books of Psalms or compiled, if maybe a better word of thinking of that, compiled five books of uh, the Psalms. In fact, this is kind of loosely broken down this way. There's like five books, um, break, break, uh, chapter breaks or book breaks uh, throughout the book of Psalms. So for example, Psalm 1, through Psalm 140, or Psalm 41 is kind of book one. Psalms book two uh, picks up around verse 42, all the way, chapter 42 down to chapter 72. Um, and there's 150 Psalms all together. Again, you can kind of get the idea that basically five different books. Um, the guys from the Bible Project have kind of described uh, the type of writing that the Psalms are consisting of is sort of like a, uh, a verbal um, experience of being in God's temple. I love that imagery. That was such a great picture, word picture that created for me that the whole idea is in in a verbal or oral written tradition in artistic and poetic language to bring me into the presence of God. Just like if I were to be standing in a brick and mortar building like the temple, I would be able to be walking in and seeing the paintings and the images and the brightness of the colors and smell of the incense that's burning and all these other types of elements that are appealing to my senses. The Psalms are written in such a way that draw my attention to the greatness of God while at the same time addressing the fact that I have feet that are firmly planted on this planet 
which means I'm dealing with the stuff of life. But I also, at the same time, am longing to have an encounter with God. And that tension is really where the Psalms brings us, is to how do we process life and its griminess, and yet at the same time recognize that God is good, and he loves us, and he's bringing us into a new life. So that's what the Psalms do. Uh, Psalms are written by multiple uh, authors. So obviously the number one contributor most, most often is believed to be David. Um, Moses uh, contributes a psalm or two. Uh, Solomon uh, contributes a few. Then you have some like by Asaph and Korah and a few other people that are named. Um, and again, it was oftentimes viewed to be like the songbook of uh, the Jewish people. Um, some have described it in one of two ways. One, it's not just the hymnal of God's temple services, meaning these would have been songs that would have been sung during the time of the temple services or the tabernacle services that would take place. Another way that it's also been identified as is Hebrew poetry. Um, Hebrew poetry. In other words, the way that we typically think of uh, poems or poetry in the English language is very different than how the Jews would have uh, understood Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. So for example, in English, we typically think of poetry or a poem that consists of rhyme or meter uh, of uh, words and phrases that kind of rhyme with each other. And, you know, it's the stuff that, that music's made out of. Hebrew poetry, poetry is different. It's not necessarily rhyming phrases or words or ideas, but one of the ways in which they've kind of uh, constructed this is more along the lines of uh, um, words that create what's called parallelisms. Uh, parallels. Um, so you might have a word phrase that's like a repetition. So here's an example. Psalm 15 verse 1 says, the Lord, uh, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle or who may dwell in your holy hill? So right there, you've got kind of repetition of tabernacle and holy hill. So the question is, again, if, if you are a literalistic type of a person, you're going to have a really hard time with the Psalms. <laughs> the Psalms are not written in, in a literal type of a sense. I mean, there are obviously literal elements, but it's written in much metaphor. And so, uh, you know, if you're like, okay, wait a minute, where does God dwell? It says right here, holy hill, and also says tabernacle. And the answer is yes. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a picture. It's a word picture to create kind of repetition. Again, it's Hebrew poetry. Psalm 1, which we will actually be reading in just a moment. Psalm 1 says this, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. And this is, again, part of that uh, poetic nature where it speaks in contrast. So it contrasts, on the one hand, the wicked person from the righteous person. Again, we'll look at it in just a, a moment. And then Psalm 1, 1, the very first opening uh, introduction line in the entire book says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And what scholars will point out is the emphasis. There's an emphasis there. So number one, uh, Hebrew poetry consists of repetition, contrasts, and emphasis. And the way it emphasizes things, the way if you or I were to emphasize stuff, in fact, when I'm looking at my notes right here, I have that word emphasis emphasized by being emboldened. Well, Hebrew literature, you're not going to embolden it or necessarily italicize it, but the way that you emphasize something is you, is you say it repeatedly in maybe multiple different ways. So another great example of this is Isaiah chapter 6. This just came off the top of my head, uh, where it says of uh, God, it says, holy, holy, holy. Um, the, the trice repeated phrase, holy, is, is a way of basically emphasizing he's not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And it's, 
it's, it's meant to capture our attention so that when we are reading it, we, our, our minds are immediately jolted by the, the holy nature of who God is. And so the Psalms are written in that particular type of style. Again, it's all part of the, this uh, Hebrew poetry. Now, what are the benefits of this? And as I was thinking about this, some of the benefits are that it allows us to process life in really unique ways. So you've got uh, multiple different types of genres of writing in the Bible. Um, One of the most familiar ways is just story or narrative. So that's where you'll read a story. Here's another good example. So uh, Exodus chapter 15, I think it's Exodus 15, and then uh, just before that, Exodus 14 and 13, 14, um, where it talks about how the children of Israel, they come out of Egypt. And so it gives some description, narrative, description as to how they were taken out of Egypt. And then Exodus chapter 15 is actually a song, just like a psalm. It's a song. But the imagery that it uses to describe what God had just described in chapters 13 and 14 is different. So again, if you are reading this from a literalistic type of a perspective, like this is literal, this has to be literal, like a wooden literalism, uh, you would have complications. You'd have problems. But again, it's not intended to be like that. It's intended to, to create an effect uh, a picture, word picture, and word pictures have a deeper effect upon our souls and our imagination than oftentimes uh, prose and or narrative oftentimes can as well. And that's what the effect of the Psalms are. It allows people like you and I, who are really truly wanting to be seekers of the truth, um, to really process not just our intellect but also our emotions. Um, in other words, it, it's it's aimed at really capturing the sum total of us. Some once uh, someone described that the Psalms are not necessarily intended for us to just study, but for them to study us. So uh, another way you can think about it is Hebraic meditative literature. The whole big idea behind it is you don't just simply read through the Psalms, you carefully process, meditate. In fact, this is the word that we'll be looking at here in just a moment, where it says that uh, those who delight in the Lord, they meditate upon his word. The word meditate um, literally in the Hebrew is one of chewing. Um, you think of like a, uh, there's, I think one of the ways in which that word meditate is actually used in the Old Testament. One of the prophets describes a lion chewing a bone. It's literally the actual, actual word uh, that we would translate elsewhere, meditate. He's <laughs> like, what's the connection between chewing on a bone and, you know, thinking about meditating upon God's word? Well, it's, if you carefully think about it, it's the same idea. You're processing you're not just reading it over quickly, fast, just to get done with it, to get through with it so you can get on with your day, but you're taking long walks, drinking good coffee. You're savoring it. You're considering it. You're recognizing certain nuances and movements within the text and allowing it to just search you. And as you are thinking about certain phrases, you begin to pray on those phrases. God, is this something you're wanting to show me or ways in my life you're wanting to change or challenge me? That's what meditation is. And so um, this is one of the benefits of this. So um, what we find in the human experience, you know, for you and I and the things that we face, especially in the midst of COVID-19, raises all sorts of questions of like justice and how do we deal with our depression or mortality or grief or loss, pain or hardship or the loss of people that maybe we have loved. Um, How do we deal with that? And how do we reconcile all of that to a God who claims to be good and all powerful, but for whatever reason did not do anything to mitigate or remove uh, those threats that we still face. 
uh, will the Psalms become this incredibly rich literature for us? Uh, before we jump into the Psalm, here's a couple other great, great quotes. Um, there's a guy by the name of Athanasius, an early church father. He says this, uh, whatever your particular need or trouble from the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you learn the way to remedy your ill. I love that image. In other words, his whole big idea is that the Psalms provide a vocabulary, a rich, biblically spirit-inspired, spirit-breathed vocabulary to help you process uh, life with God and and in this crazy world in which we live in uh, with faithfulness. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. doesn't mean that you're going to somehow get all the answers to life's challenges or difficulties, but it will give you language to process grief, loss, injustice, pain, hardship, joys, celebration, so on and so forth. John Calvin uh, said this, that the design of the Holy Spirit was to deliver the church a common form of prayer. I love Calvin's um, movement towards this to basically describe that this is a prayer book. It's intended to give us language, vocabulary on how to take our deepest hurts and pains and joys and celebrations to God and then begin to wrestle with all of this in his very presence. Um, So part of this journey is not just simply that I'm inviting you to be part of, not just to learn the Psalms, but let the Psalms begin to shape our mind, our affections, and even to give us words on how to process. And I've never shared this with many people, but just I had an experience several weeks ago, actually. Uh, It's current. Just a couple weeks ago, I was reading a Psalm, and it so impacted me in exactly where I was at in life. I think it was like Psalm 69, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I literally, after I first read it, I went back for the next hour and a half, and I just, I have a, an app called the Dwell app, and I just put it on repeat. So I listened to the psalm um, from my favorite voice, a guy named Felix, and then had music that was playing in the background. And I just did that for the next hour and a half. And it so impacted my soul and gave me exactly what I need um, one person, I'm not even sure who it was, said something like, the Psalms is the greatest book of therapy you'll ever get. And honestly, I experienced that, that, that moment, that I, I felt like God, as my savior slash therapist, gave me everything I needed in that moment. Did all my problems and trials go away? No, but what God did is he gave me a profound, better insight into the circumstances I was facing and equipped me with language and vocabulary to be able to express what I was going through. And then I reinstituted faith and confidence in God who was taking me through this whole situation. So Martin Luther uh, described the Psalms this way. He says that it's the Bible in miniature, and it describes all these different movements of God. faithfulness to God, unfaithfulness to God, God's faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness over and over and over again, like this whole storyline in the Bible in miniature form. Uh, he also said that, come, let us sing a psalm and drive away the devil. I love that image. I mean, Luther, if you know anything of his writing, he, he wrote in oftentimes robust ways and was like, sing a psalm, it'll drive away the devil. I love that image. Um, one other cool story that I read about uh, Luther, is that it was actually in 1527, uh, Luther actually faced one of the greatest difficulties of his entire life as, get this, the Black Plague actually swept throughout Europe and throughout and across Germany and the European continent. And it was right around this time that Luther's son actually was, was threatened, almost died. 
And Luther himself was a guy that, you know, if you're familiar with the story, oftentimes dealt with bouts of depression and just incredible grief and loss and, you know, melancholy and all these types of ways to describe this. And, and it was in this season of facing a pandemic and Luther's own son almost dying and Luther himself dealing with incredible weight of just difficulty that he would sit down and read over and over and over again Psalm 46. Um, and it was from that particular psalm that he actually composed his most famous hymn called A Mighty Fortress. Uh, if you're familiar with it, there's this little phrase in A Mighty Fortress, um, which I thought I had, but I don't have. So uh, you'll just look it up, Google it. There you go. A Mighty Fortress is our God. But Luther had written that particular uh, hymn um, kind of as a recomposition of Psalm 46. And one of his uh, good closest friends, a guy by the name of Philip Melanchthon, there was a time or multiple times when, uh, when he was in this dark season of his life and super discouraged as a result of life and his own son and his own fears and traumas and things that he was facing, he would turn to Philip Melanchthon, his uh, co-worker, and he would say, a sure stronghold uh, is our God, and he's a timely shield. And he says, let us sing, Philip. Let's sing Psalm 46. So they would sing Psalm 46 together, and this was basically the psalm. A sure stronghold is our God, is he a timely shield and a weapon? Our helper, he will be and set us free from every ill that can happen. So what we see is that he would oftentimes write this. And then later, he said that just before uh, Luther died, about three years, he had actually written in his journal these words. He said, Psalm 119. He says, if your law had, been, uh, had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. And this is a great summary verse of uh, Luther's life. And it was Luther's faithfulness to really meditate upon God that led him to really kind of be the, the type of uh, person that he was. Again, he was not perfect. He had his ups and downs. He was an extremely moody and crazy guy, but God used him in really profound ways and I think because of his deep connection to God in the Psalms that had, that had been written by God and then given as a gift to the church. And so what I want to do right now is I want to uh, switch gears now. I want to read Psalm 1. I'll make a couple quick comments and we'll wrap it up. Psalm 1, just go ahead and listen, and then I'll make some closing comments. Psalm 1 says this, blessed is the man. In fact, let's do this. Uh, why don't you grab your Bibles? And if you want, if you're in your house, go ahead and just stand up where you're at. That's cool. Um, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV, um, so just follow along. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, you should have a Bible. There should be some around you. Grab one. Um, and if you'd like to stand, great. If you're in bed and you're not you know, presentable, that's totally cool too as well. So just chill right where you're at. Uh, just go ahead and listen to Psalm 1 as it opens like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, verse five, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Couple things to say real quick. Again, this is one of those passages where you gotta you gotta you gotta read it and recognize this for what it is. Number one, like I said, this is Hebrew poetry. Uh, there's it raises the question. Uh, one of my 
favorite theologian, a guy by the name of D.A. Carson, did an excellent job. You can just check out his sermon on this. Just type in, uh, I think it's called like Two Ways or Psalm 1 or kind of figure out, just type in D.A. Carson, do a YouTube search, you'll find it. He does a fantastic teaching on this, but one of the things that he addresses is the, uh, the binaries that we oftentimes look at. So we say stuff like this, and, this, and I would say, he points out, and I would totally agree with him, it's straight up wrong. When we say, okay, if there's two people, two types of people in the world, and that's it, like he points out, we know that's not, there's, look, we, we live in the world where there's shades of, of good and evil. And if, if we just simply relegate one group of people, they're the dudes and the gals with white hats, and these are the people over here with black hats, they're the good people, they're the bad people, and that's it. Uh, what he goes on to point out is, is that we know that that's not how the world is that we live in. It's not just this binary of good and, uh, good and bad, good and evil. Um, there are these shades oftentimes that make up. So what he's addressing is that if we just simply look at this from a literal standpoint, then we, I think, don't treat the text the way that we should. So we say stuff like this if we do in this literalistic type of mindset. So if I meditate on the Bible every single day, then my life is going to be prosperous. Well, what if it doesn't? What if you are faithful, follower of Jesus, and you are meditating upon Scripture, and you have these regular habits in your life, and you get cancer and die? I mean, it sounds super morbid, but it's the world we live in. Um, here's another good example that he points out. Is that what, what about the passage, for example, in um, wisdom literature, literature where it says, uh, tramp a child in the way you should go. When they're older, they'll not depart. Um, some have abused that passage by saying, look, I read the Bible to my kid every single day, and that is a sure guarantee that my child will never stray from the faith. But what happens when they do? Or if it does? Does that mean that you failed? Um, these are the type of binaries that oftentimes lead us down pathways that I think uh, remove us from the core idea that the Bible is trying to teach. And this is what D.A. Carson points out, because these are actually not intended to be these binary ways in which right or wrong, bad or good, but more or less looking at these as, as a general framework. Those that are setting God first in their life, recognizing him to be king over their lives, over this world, will live in a particular way. And generally speaking, generally speaking, this is what will happen. I think this is an important tension to identify because I think what we can oftentimes do is we look for like a list of to-dos and not-dos. And if we just faithfully live according to those things and we think that somehow if I get the formula right, then everything's going to go in my, my way and I'm going to prosper. But what happens if it doesn't? Well, you're left in a place of despair because you use the scripture as nothing more than a magic formula. It's not a magic formula. It's intended to give us the heart of God, to show us who God is and what God is like and how we're called to respond to him. And what I want to just finish on are some closing thoughts with regard to what I think the psalm is saying. Is it saying, in general, in general, there are two ways to go. Just like the introduction of the entire Bible. You have Adam and Eve, and there were two ways to go. One was the way of good and righteousness, following the ways of God. One was the way that seemed right unto them in that moment, but in the end led to death and destruction. Or Abraham, who was invited to follow God, became known and identified as a friend of God. Or David, um, again, uh, David was, quote unquote, a man after God's own heart. And it doesn't mean that everything that David had done throughout his entire life was always something that God would look at favorably. 
because if that were to be the case, and how do you identify moments where David you know, was conspiring to commit adultery and then ultimately murder uh, against Bathsheba and her husband? Um, but in general, David was a man that came back again and again to the heart of God and says, God, I, I need you. I like to think of it this way. I think what Psalm 1 is basically doing is it's, a, it's an on-ramp into the rest of the writings of the Psalms. And it's generally saying, look, there's a way that looks like fidelity, faithfulness to God. To God. And then there's a way that just disregards God. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, do, do we see God as our delight or as an intruder? Because the way the Bible opens is God is good. He speaks, creates. Earth and all creation is amazing. And God declares it's good over it. And then he invites Adam and Eve, and he gives them the planet. He says, be kings and a queen over all of this stuff and steward it well. And in order to do that well, you need wisdom, which means it comes from me, God would say. I am the source of wisdom. Seek me and you'll live. Adam and Eve, instead of seeking God and living, they sought their own source of wisdom, which comes in the package of a serpent, which corresponds with the desires of their heart, which was not to delight in God. Um, And then they found themselves in this state of being exiled from this good garden that God created for them. Um, There's a way that God framed this earth and all creation. And he says, I am the creator of all things, and I've placed human beings to be in my creation, to steward it well. And everything depends upon how do you, how do you view this world? It's a really important way of thinking about this. Because if you view the world as God's good creation, and I'm a steward of this, and I'm going to do the very best that I can with God's grace, God's power, God's strength, uh, God's word, God's intentions, God's assignments to be a faithful steward of all that he has, meaning you delight in God then there'll be one outcome. But if you look at this world as this is my world, I worked for this, I've created this, I own all this, and I feel threatened by anybody that wants to take a piece of my world, including God. He's an intruder. If that's the path that you take, that has consequences as well. And what that pathway looks like, as I would dare say, is it looks like the six o'clock news where everybody looks at the world in such a way where I'm in charge and everyone else is a threat to my livelihood, my peace. But I think what someone does is it introduces us to a way of being human that delights in God. So I guess the question I would just leave you with is, how do you view God as a source of delight Love. Um, Some have stated that we are what we think. (laughs) And I think there's some truth to that. You know, how you think about yourself, how you think about the world, your neighbor, others around you, uh, that will have an impact. But another author, James K. Smith, I think is his name, he actually wrote a book that was called You Are What You Love. And his whole thesis is that really it's not just what you think, it's what you love. It's what you delight in. So, it's a good moment for us to pause and really reflect. 
What, what do I delight in? The psalmist here is inviting us to take a look at those who delight in God and they meditate upon his word, the Torah. They welcome. They're not perfect. They long for the heart of God. In their life, what he describes is they will be like a tree planted. They will be fruitful. And he says they'll be prosperous. That word prosperous is you know, gained a lot of baggage and a lot of memes and a lot of caricatures. Um, but think of it as a way of just flourishing. Your life will be in a pathway whereby God is at the center. doesn't mean that there's going to be moments where your life will be filled with languishing and challenges and hardships. But in the overall overarching of all things, there's a balance to our lives. So there's two ways to live. One where God is our delight. The other is where God is just simply a nuisance and a threat and an intruder into my world. My hope, as we are in the midst of this pandemic, just like Luther, that we would see the Psalms as this incredible on-road or on-ramp into a world of processing our grief, our loss, our pain, our hardships, not on our own, not through the wisdom of this age, but through the word of God that ultimately, I, I truly believe, brings about a meditation upon him, himself and upon his ways, then brings about a lifestyle that is genuinely Godward. That's my hope. What direction are you heading? What pathway are you going down? Two different types of people. What describes your heart?